0: Deathbed requests are usually made by the people who are dying. When Benjamin Franklin died, it was Charles Wilson Peel, a friend and survivor who forever after regretted not having made one last timely ask of Franklin. Peel was a famous artist, also an accomplished taxidermist. Having missed his chance to get permission, he found himself wondering...
1: If he had approached Ben Franklin with the idea of taxidermically preserving Franklin. Peel said, you know, well, maybe then the other still-living founding fathers would have signed off on similar plans uh, for their corpses.
0: Imagine an American Hall of Fame displaying actual bodies of historic figures like Hamilton, Madison, Adams, maybe even Betsy Ross. I think this Charles Wilson Peel, the American guy, was a, a bit of a nut. But with a timely request, he may have prevailed upon Franklin. It's conceivable. After all, Franklin himself was a bit of a nut. He may have given permission. No one asked permission from the moose. I'm talking about a taxidermized moose shipped overseas to an uppity French scientist by none other than Thomas Jefferson. Georges-Louis Leclerc, Comte du Buffon was a preeminent naturalist, and Jefferson's aim was to simply refute the count's crazy belief that America, on the basis of its wildlife alone, was a wimpy, degenerate place.
1: At one point, Thomas Jefferson sent a taxidermically preserved moose to Buffon, you know, shipped it across the Atlantic to say, no, we don't just have small, diminutive animals in North America. We have large, thriving animals. The environment's
0: perfectly fine. He could have sent a pie with instructions on what to do with it, but Jefferson's style was more stuffed megafauna in your face. But back to Charles Wilson Peel. Franklin, while still alive, did present Mr. Peel with the carcass of an Angora rabbit. But ultimately, Peel would have preferred Franklin to the founder's rabbit, and then after that, maybe George Washington, which didn't happen either, and we know where Washington is buried. However... Pieces of the first president abound. For some reason, hundreds of samples of Washington's hair ended up circulating around the country. Most of it obtained well before Washington's demise, maybe a little of it before entombment. But why? The past is never dead. It's not even past. William Faulkner penned those clever words, And if Faulkner is right, then it would also be true that anyone who cannot touch the past doesn't really have a present. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. So what can we hang on to? What can we grasp of former lives? These people are our predecessors. If so much of what they leave behind ultimately vanishes. Important places are great to visit. Pictures are great. Photos. Instagram posts, while they last. But personal effects, clothing, papers, jewelry, shoes. Personal items like these are perhaps the most convincing argument, I think, for the idea that the past is not dead. Substantial artifacts help us out where insubstantial memory fails us. But even more impressive than the stuff that somebody once owned and left behind might actually be remnants of an actual person, like bones or ashes. But let's talk about hair.
1: I was doing research years ago on how early Americans remembered the American Revolution and founding. And I was talking to an archivist at Independence Hall National Historic Park, and I told her I was beginning to come up on multiple cases in the early Republic where people had preserved locks of Washington's hair, George Washington's actual hair.
0: That's Keith Butler, author of George Washington's Hair, How Early Americans Remembered the Founders. Butler is a history professor at Missouri Baptist University.
1: Some of these you know, could have been spurious. The paper trail on a number of these was was quite good. Uh, so I, I knew it had been going on, and she became very excited when I told her this and said, well, if you want to see the mother load on that topic, you need to go over to the Academy of Natural Sciences a few blocks away there in Philadelphia. So I went there as fast as I could with public transportation. I was really excited. When I got there, the archivist, he showed me a collection of hair, human hair done by... Peter Errol Brown in the mid-19th century. Brown was a prominent a lawyer in Philadelphia at the time, but also, as he saw it at least, a man of science. And he was a leading member of the Academy of Natural Sciences. And in that capacity, he wrote to people all over the country and he collected locks of hair from the leading founders of the United States, And he additionally collected hair from other people, from, for example, insane asylum inmates and uh, people of various races, and he even collected the hair of animals. And he taxonomically put these into his collection, which he called his hair pile, in various uh, ways. But he had in particular what he called his presidential hair book. And that was one of the first things I looked at. And it was a, it devoted a, a page to each of the first 15 presidents of the United States. So Washington through Buchanan. And for each president, Brown had in that book a lithograph image of the president and then a lock of hair that he had of that person that he'd acquired from them or from their heirs, depending on when he acquired it. Brown himself died in 1860, so unfortunately he didn't get Abraham Lincoln's hair, which was a little, you know, disappointing to me. But I was still stunned. I I couldn't believe as I was leafing through this that right in front of me were these uh, locks of hair from, you know, each of the first 15 presidents. So Adams, Jefferson, and of course, you know, Washington and and the others. And I looked at Brown's uh, collection of his, his archives, basically, where he Took made copies of the letters he sent to the families and where he kept the incoming correspondence from them. And because I worked in this period so extensively, I can actually recognize the handwriting of a lot of members of these families, and I knew this is the real deal, you know, as, as far as anyone could say. And so that really uh, pushed me to focus heavily on this phenomenon of collection of physical artifacts of
0: the founding fathers, did you have reverence before the, these, you know, you're opening this book and there's the hair of 15 presidents?
1: Well, now you're going to embarrass me, but absolutely I did. I mean, it is still, if I'm being completely honest, one of the more striking experiences of my, not just my career, but I will say with some embarrassment of my life, you know, because it was strange to be alone uh, with these artifacts and to see good evidence that they were the real deal, and Later, it reminded me of an experience I had because I I spent 20 years really researching uh, the the memory of the American Revolution in the early United States. And I was in a different archive in Philadelphia, the the, um, American Philosophical Society, one day, when unrelated to my research – Neil Armstrong, who was still alive at the time, the the moon man, you know, the first person to walk on the moon, came to the APS to receive an award. And an archivist said, you want to go see Neil Armstrong at lunch? And I said, sure. And we walked over to where Armstrong was speaking. And it turns out he was just coming out at that time. I ended up accidentally in the queue to shake his hand. I will tell you, I actually chose not to shake his hand because I had literally just read an article by chance a couple of weeks before about how much he hated that sort of thing. And I thought it was rather noble at the time of me to not bother Neil Armstrong and take advantage of the situation. But I have to tell you that I think about that probably at least once a year today and think it would be such a better story to tell my kids that I actually touched Neil Armstrong instead of, you know, that her eyes just met. And it's such a seemingly such a primitive thing, but I really think it speaks to the human thirst for incarnation for the actual presence of each other physically. And I think it's something maybe we all understand a little bit more acutely in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. Uh, in many cases, people were physically separated from each other and and Zoom just couldn't make up the difference. You know? So I think there's something mysterious involved. And yes, to, to go to your question, I do feel a sense of, of reverence when I see these artifacts in a certain way, I do.
0: In addition to being a history professor, Keith Butler is also a practicing and believing Christian. So when he says he feels reverence for artifacts, well, you can rest assured that he's perhaps just venerating them, not idolizing or worshiping them, but encountering the presidential hairbook in Philadelphia did move him in a visceral, kind of gut-level way. For him, touching the hair of George Washington was a bridge to the past. It would be for any of us. A reminder that those who went before are more present than we often suppose. What were the motivations of Peter Errol Brown, the man who collected that hair? Well, it turns out that he had some weird ideas about what we could learn from Washington's hair. Ideas that were typical of his day, appalling in ours.
1: Well, I really wondered what his larger scheme was. uh, Particularly given that he was collecting hair also from shall we say, other extreme personages as he would have seen them, such as insane asylum inmates. And I had my answer by the time I left that day because I found tables where he would systematically compare physical features of the hair from these different cohorts, from, for example, American founding fathers uh, to the hair of, say, insane asylum inmates and, and to uh, people of various races. And he would look at the tensile strength and various attributes that he thought he detected under his microscope. And I could tell that he was building an algorithm to try to tease out the character, including the moral character and fitness of people by their hair. So this was all part of something I had already seen uh, developing on the scene of early American memory culture, which was attention to what they called in the 1820s, physiognomy, uh, to scientific, they would have said, but these later were shown pretty conclusively to have been pseudoscientific, theories that, that tried to tease out people's character from their physical characteristics and really ended up, because they were pseudoscientific, really ended up, as in Brown's case, just ratifying people's prejudices. So uh, in the most extreme example, Brown later, in later years, in 1849 is going to literally take a lock of Washington's hair, compare its physical features to lock of hair of of someone of a different race, uh, an African-American, and a Native American, sample size one, sample size one, sample size one. You can already see there's a problem here uh, in terms of it ever approaching real science. And he's going to use it to reify his own Racism to argue that Washington had the perfect hair uh, and that by synecdoche uh, that Washington's race was superior. It's obscene stuff. Uh, But unfortunately, I think the real story is it was deeply sincere on his part, on Brown's part.
0: Well, I suppose that our motives in memorializing something as we preserve stuff to shore up our fallible memories... Well, these motives range from honoring and venerating to merely hoarding, maybe even justifying racist attitudes and behaviors, as in the case we just heard about. But keeping people or parts of people around, it gets even more weird in American history. So let's, dare I say, flesh out that story of Mr. Peel, the painter and taxidermist. Even people who don't know Charles Wilson Peel by name are often familiar with his famous portraits of our nation's leading founders. Until speaking with Keith Butler, I had no idea just how close Benjamin Franklin came to being stuffed and mounted like some faithful poodle named Fido. We all loved Fido, but his spirit has crossed over Jordan to the promised land. God rest his soul.
1: I begin my book with Charles Wilson Peel a veteran of the American Revolution, had been an officer in the war, knew Washington, George Washington, and other leading founders personally. And in after years, in, in Peel's old age, particularly in the 18-teens and 20s, he really became focused on trying to convey the, the memory of the founding of the nation, uh, to his thinking at least accurately, to the rising generation of, of young people who, who had not been alive at the time. And so one of the things he's going to do to that end appeal is, is he's going to actually start the nation's first museum of history, of American history. And he does that on the what today we would recognize as the upper floor of Independence Hall. He hung around the top of the room paintings that he did of George Washington and other leading founders, paintings that he, he prided himself in uh, the accuracy of. Peale uh, was, was at pains in, in producing these works of art to delineate the features of the founders he wrote with scientific precision. And then beneath this gallery, Peale had a collection of animals that he had taxidermically preserved that he put in little cubby holes um, all around the perimeter as well, literally beneath the founding fathers. What Peel is doing was he was literally defending the American physical environment because there were, at the time, a lot of intellectuals in the transatlantic world. For example, a guy by the name of Buffon in France who was a well-known French philosopher who was thought of at the time as perhaps the world's leading natural scientist who argued that North America is an inferior place in terms of the physical environment itself, and that it, because it's so physically poorly positioned on the globe, and the air is not right, and all kinds of uh, features like that, according to Buffon, he said that only diminutive, inferior animals exist in North America. Well, Buffon had never actually been to North America, and didn't know much about the animals there in reality. Americans took umbrage with this famous criticism. They worried about it a lot more than you might think. For example, at one point, Thomas Jefferson sent a taxidermically preserved moose to Buffon, shipped it across the Atlantic to say, no, we don't just have small, diminutive uh, animals in North America. We have large, thriving uh, animals. The, The environment's perfectly fine. Well, to make the same point... Peel put all of these taxidermically preserved animals beneath the founding fathers and he arranged them in what he thought was a Linnaean classification from simpler <laughs> animals to more uh, sophisticated with the founding fathers at the top. I mean, it's almost Darwinian before there was Darwin, you know, but that in the, in the, in the taxonomy of species that Homo sapiens are at the top, but not just any, any Homo sapiens, George Washington and friends are the greatest ever. And he was serious about all of this. And he saw this as scientific evidence that the public could come and view for themselves t- so that they would feel properly inspired with America and the American environment. And one of Peel's regrets near the end of his life was that he had not actually taxidermically preserved the founding fathers. And
0: he was serious whoa, about whoa, this, Whoa, whoa, whoa. You've he- got to stop there. Did I hear you right?
1: You did, you did. You absolutely did. Peel, in particular, uh, mused several times near the end of his life that if he had approached Ben Franklin with the idea of taxidermically preserving Franklin when Franklin died in 1790, that he might have been able to then use Franklin's cachet, you know, if if Franklin set the example by allowing his body to be preserved this way, Peel said, you know, well, maybe then the other uh, living, still living founding fathers would have signed off on similar plans uh, for their corpses. But Peel never you know, broached the thing with Franklin, and he he regretted it ever after. And he thought, you know, being a man of science, that Franklin would actually appreciate that kind of technology. And he had actually taxidermically preserved Franklin's pet rabbit uh, for Franklin. So, you know, he knew that Franklin knew he was a good taxidermist, but...
0: He was just ramping up to what to see what he'd be capable of later on.
1: Exactly. Personally, I breathe a sigh of relief when I tell you that uh, their, the founding fathers were definitely not taxidermically preserved. That would be freaky to me. But
0: Well, you know, what we're getting into here is the whole range of what's possible from keeping a lock of Washington's hair to maybe preserving Lenin in a mausoleum.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, or Jeremy Bentham, you know, if you're familiar right. with that uh, ghoulish display. No, they are similar uh, in many respects. and it Again, I think it has to do with the human thirst for incarnation, for the ideas that we care about to take on flesh and
0: walk amongst us. Okay, this is getting very this is getting very abstract, but I think it's very important. When you say incarnation, yes. the you yes, know, yes. when I go and have meat, and the, the root of the Latin word, the the you know, carnitas, when I go and right, get meat, right. we're talking yes. about flesh, and and, yes. and and so you're talking about ideas being made flesh.
1: Yes, absolutely. And if if it sounds like this has shades of the Christian story, I think it emphatically does, which ends up becoming an important part of my story because for a large segment of the American uh, Christian religious population in the period that I tend to center the work on, the period of the 1820s, which is when the founding generation, its last members are dying off and the, the baton culturally is being handed to the rising generation. And then the question is very uh, important. You know, will the rising generation uh, care about uh, what is what has come before? Will they remember uh, the founders and, and what will they think the import of all that is? Uh, in this moment, you might say, of, of, of truth or crisis uh, in American memory, um, people are going to reach out to try to anchor the, the patriotic memory that they that most of them do want to hold to, they're gonna reach out for these kinds of, of relics and artifacts. And while they don't have the, the actual bodies of the founders uh, available, this is where you get a proliferation of interest in things like locks of Washington's hair.
0: I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. One man who ended up with a lock of George Washington's hair had a very different idea as to what that hair should signify.
1: The relics of the founders had differing cultural meanings for Americans in different contexts. One of my favorites and a person that I freely admit my wife could tell you this after I've been researching these topics for 20 years, that I'm kind of obsessed with is a guy by the name of Hamid Akhmet. And he is literally at the center of my book. Hamid Akman was a black Revolutionary War veteran who fought on the Patriot side with Washington's forces in the American Revolution. Akman, at the time of the Revolution, was, you know, quote-unquote, just a drummer boy, but he claimed that later he had gone on to be a servant was his preferred term, but of course it, it, it would have been if it occurred Almost certainly a, a relationship of enslavement, working for George and Martha Washington, and legally speaking owned uh, by them. Whether that actually happened, wh- you know, whether he had that relationship with them, I I just can't independently corroborate his story. I can show that the evidence is good that he was in the American Revolution and that uh, he was in the right places, that in in combat he probably would have seen uh, in some of these battles Washington actually appeared, you know, at at the front, so to speak. So he certainly had an awareness of Washington and uh, other leaders in the Revolution. And late in Achmed's life, in the 1820s and 30s, living in Middletown, Connecticut, he would brandish a lock of hair that he said was George Washington's given to him by Washington's heirs. And it's a wild story, Marcus, but, you know, for the longest time, I I couldn't find a reason why the Washington heirs would have given that to him uh, in particular. I just couldn't find a, a connection between them and him that I could verify in any real way. And I'm still not, you know, I still can't prove the, the validity uh, of that artifact that he had Washington's hair, which, by the way, still exists in the Middlesex County Historical Society in Middletown, Connecticut. They have the hair. But, Almost as I was going to press, because I work on Achmed all the time, I keep finding more documents about this one, you know, impoverished African-American... Uh, drummer boy from the revolution. It's amazing. And I found evidence that he did in fact have a relationship with one of Washington's lineal heirs. Washington had children, but he had inheritors, you know, and uh, adopted children in effect. And one of those heirs had actually donated some money to Hamad Akhmet, which is stunning and raises the possibility that the surviving hares are real. And there's all kinds of evidence that, that Hamad Akhmet, uh, in brandishing washington's hair that he literally i mean it sounds unbelievable but but the evidence is there that he brandished washington's hair in juxtaposition with his own hair and that in in effect you know, you know the hair of an african american uh, person at the time was was um politically charged and and an uh refused to wear his hair in an assimilationist style there was actually controversy I can show from the sources in the community, and particularly with his wife, who was a white woman. Uh, so he he took his life in his own hands, Ahmed did, by crossing the the racial lines uh, that existed culturally there, and marrying a white woman. And he um, the evidence is, you know, refused to to play the game of, of assimilation of of believing that he was in any way inferior for being of African descent. He wore his hair in a flamboyantly African way, uh, people at the time repeatedly pointed out. And it was a little bit like the politics of hairstyle in the 1960s with black activists, I I think. And this is just an amazing case because I think the evidence is that he was saying, um, I have a piece of the hair of the ultimate White guy, this founding father George Washington that I knew, and and you don't, you didn't know him, you know, like most most of his hearers, and I helped uh, him win the revolution, and I, you know, knew him personally. Uh, that I am in effect a founding father myself, and Akma took great pride in the fact that he ended up legally getting a pension as a Revolutionary War veteran. And the evidence is that he was resisting a surging discrimination against African-Americans in the United States at that time in the 1820s and 30s, and in particular, a colonizationist movement, as it was called, right there in Middletown, but also in much of America, that wanted to send people like him, quote unquote, and it's terrible language, but back to Africa. And he, and his argument was, no, I'm an American. I fought for this country. And I am a relic of the revolution. It's an amazing juxtaposition and just, I think, a stunning case of the politics of memory and how the hair could mean lots of different things,
0: right? Well, it sounds to me like his possession of that hair that belonged to George Washington was a physical argument. That that was more or, more or less irrefutable because he his words would mean right. much less. Absolutely,
1: it gave literal concreteness to his claim of affiliation with that founder, George Washington, and more largely with the founding, and uh, that he expressed the idea that he was a player in that in that dialogue of American memory and meaning.
0: Yeah, it, it kind of goes to the whole issue of legitimacy. It's kind of like yes. in a courtroom where you have to produce the weapon.
1: Yes, exactly. No, that's exactly right. Um, he he delivered the body uh, quite literally here, his and Washington's. In his pension application, uh, Achmed, uh, you might say boasted, but he certainly pointed to it as evidence. He said, "I I bleed daily from a wound suffered at the Battle of Germantown. And so he's saying my own body is... Evidence of my connection to the founding, my legitimacy.
0: So it seems pretty clear to me that in this person, Hamid Ahmet, we have an early American using hair to make a social and political point, much as Peter Errol Brown tried to do, but precisely in the opposite direction. Brown sought to offer hairy evidence that would distinguish the founders as unique and superior. Ahmed's argument was that his own hair belonged right alongside whatever Washington's head could offer, because after all, they were both participants in the revolution, both founders, both patriots, both Americans. Turnabout is fair play, so well played, Hamid Ahmed. Back for a moment to Charles Wilson Peale, the painter-taxidermist. You know his project, his vision for preserving the American founders. Well, our country actually kind of dodged that one, I, I think. We, we got Mount Rushmore and the Liberty Bell instead. Well, this Mr. Peel, he may have been on to something as he was thinking that Ben Franklin, as a son of the Enlightenment, might very well have gone along with this, you know, in the interest of science. And then on the religious side, there's plenty of precedent for uh, hanging on to bodies in one way or another. There are the Catholic saints, many of them... Uh, Religious relics, uh, desiccated but lying peacefully in this or that European cathedral. And then there's Vladimir Lenin, already mentioned him, the founding figure of Soviet Russia. I haven't seen him. He's lying to this very day in his mausoleum on Red Square. This has been a fairly persistent thing for humans to do. Not with everybody, but with, well, dare I say, the people that they want to remember the most. How American is any of this? Well, it depends on what you mean by American. The colonial American values and practices during the days of the revolutionaries, you got to think about that predominantly Protestant backdrop and also the scientific roots of the Enlightenment era and how that influenced American thought. Colonial America had indeed veered away from the old Catholic-style reverence for saints or the preservation of bodily remains as religious relics.
1: It was very awkward for large segments of the population, such as American Evangelicals, because the American evangelicals are going to pride themselves in not being, quote-unquote, this is their term, not mine, popish, and in not holding to, as they would have said, idolatrous relics, as they charged the Catholics did with you know, veneration of relics of the saints, pieces of the true cross, that kind of thing. And yet, many American evangelicals are going to be more than happy, as my book shows, to to become very interested in an attempt to acquire and preserve relics of the United States founding fathers. And the question becomes, how do they square the circle? And the answer is that they're going to lean on scientific, in most cases we would say they turned out to be pseudoscientific, theories about why we need physical objects to preserve memory. And the evangelicals in America would say, oh, we're not actually venerating these things idolatry. We're just using them as physical anchors of memory. And the new science of memory shows that you have to have these things to to keep uh, memory solid.
0: The idea that you want to be close to something and you want to bridge that gap— This is as simple as wanting to have, you know, if I could hug my father again, he's now deceased, you know? Um, Yes, yes. There's there's just something here that is so profound going on in terms of trying to reclaim what is lost. Yes,
1: I think that is absolutely right. And that touches me profoundly, too. I lost my father a number of years ago to cancer. And for me, you know, as, as an evangelical teacher at Missouri Baptist University, I mean, I, I do think in terms of the promise of the resurrection, you know, uh, of, of Jesus and the in, the the story of that incarnation. And um, I think it's deep in the human soul to want and and maybe even to expect to be reunited with the loved and lost, uh, not, not just conceptually connected to them, but to be once again able to, to hug each other or whatnot. Um, it speaks to some profound things. And I think uh, applied to the to the memory of the American Revolution, of the nation, I don't think anyone, I would hope, wants to create a, an actually, you know, idolatrous, uh, absurd, uh, overweening level of, of veneration. But I, I think this tells us that the artifacts that you find in museums are always going to be important. For the most part, as historians, we tend to focus on ideas that are preserved, documents, sure, and it's it's nice to have the original autographs. But in many cases, once we have them transcribed, we have seemingly pulled much of the meaning out of them. And yet, I, I think there is a, a place and will always be a place for, shall we say, original artifacts. I mean, think about how we have the Declaration of Independence, you know, on display at the National Archives, and we juxtapose it by the Constitution, and we have Marine guards, you know, that protect this. Um, it's not as if we would lose the actual text, uh, what the words are, if, if the originals were destroyed. But the tangible originals still mean so much to us.
0: So what I need to do now is make sure that you retract your earlier statement of being embarrassed at all. <laughs> These things should not be embarrassing yes, yes. to us.
1: You're right. No, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it's, it shows that we're human, perhaps, in the best possible way. That's right. As human beings, we have bodies and not just souls. And the two are really of a piece for us and, and matter together for us.
0: So what if, personally, you are not particularly interested in or invested in the idea of keeping hair around to memorialize people of the past? You know, actually, it may well be that diminishing enthusiasm in America for collecting hair uh, coincided with the arrival of a new technology called photography. And that calls for a sequel to this episode of Constant Wonder. In our next installment, we're going to talk about how Americans of the Civil War era leveraged this technological miracle of making true-to-life photographic images in the ongoing quest to keep the past from dying. Special thanks today to Keith Butler, our guest, author of George Washington's Hair, How Early Americans Remembered the Founders. Butler is a history professor at Missouri Baptist University. This episode produced by Eric Schultzke and Daniel McDonald, sound designed by Parker Schmidt and the BYU Broadcasting Sound Design team. I'm Marcus Smith for Constant Wonder. Thanks for listening.